May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, you're it. Those are the words that begin millions and billions of childhood games, don't they? You remember some of them? Hide and go seek? Anybody? Um, pile on. There are other names for it, but this is where one person gets tackled and all the other kids pile on. That's what we called it in my neighborhood. Other names, too, that weren't nearly as glamorous. Um, and, and then last but not least, tag. You remember tag? Tag is when you tag somebody and they're it. And then they have to tag somebody else, and then they're it, and so on. And the best way to play tag is with the no tag back rule. <laughs> you know that one? Where you tag and somebody can't turn around and tag you back. They have to at least pass through one other soul before it comes back to you. One of my favorite games when I was a kid. Tag. Uh, my, my son, uh, Benjamin, was down at the, in Columbus uh, last couple weeks ago at a, at a wrestling tournament. And they had all these shirts from all the other high school sports. And there's this one, it was a cross-country shirt. He, of course, stocked up on a wardrobe because they were all real cheap. And uh, the one was a cross-country shirt. And it said, um, if this was a game of tag, you would be it forever. You know, it was on the back. So, you know, you're running away from somebody. A little swagger among the cross-country group. You know, um, I I thought when I was was a kid, there were two types of, of, of kids that would play tag. Um, it wasn't just the fast and the slow. It was two different types. There were the determined, dogged, determined kids, and the ones who gave up very easily. And, and you didn't want you didn't want that kid that gave up real easily. They were no fun. You didn't really want the fast kids because they would tag everybody, you know, and it'd be over. You didn't want the lazy, slow kid who would just give up and walk away. You wanted a unique combination of slow and determined, you know? That was the kid you want. Give me a neighborhood where there's a kid who's slow, but he never gives up. Oh, and, and, and I'm in heaven, right? I mean, there's, we can play this game forever. Need some stubbornness. Somebody who would stick to it, who would, you know, kind of just keep chasing no matter what, you know? That was the kid you want. Any stubborn people in here? No. no I mean... You would never admit to it, but I bet there's one or two of you out here that are a little bit stubborn, a little, a little thick-headed, a little, you know, stiff-necked, I don't know what you call it, but you kind of, you're kind of that person who just doesn't give up. Well, you're in good company. There are a lot of great people in the history of humanity who were like, just like you, <laughs> just like me. Um, there are people like Thomas Edison, who said many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close to success they were when they gave up. You know this other one he also said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Right? Keep working hard. Or if I find 10,000 ways that something doesn't work, I haven't wasted time because I know that there's still one out there, right? Always one more step forward. I couldn't help but to think that little Tommy Edison was the kid that everybody wanted to play tag with. I mean, I just picture him as really slow but never gave up. You know, that they're always after him. But Einstein, too. I mean, Einstein says, I think and think for months and months and years. Ninety-nine times the conclusion is false, but the 100th time, I'm right. Jack Dempsey, a champion, is someone who gets up even when he can't. Vince Lombardi, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. And, of course, Winston Churchill, never, never, never give up. Oh, my, we need people like this, don't we? But the difference between the Edisons and Einsteins and 
and Churchills and the people who wake up in the morning in the county jail is is it that they are both stubborn is that one knows when they're wrong one knows when to turn and go a different direction Einstein says you know this one insanity you know the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and over again expecting different results <laughs> I mean there's a time when you're wrong and you just have to go a different direction not giving up your 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 stubborn determination but knowing when you're wrong and going a different direction. There's a fine line, isn't there, between determination and blockheadedness. I don't know if blockheadedness is a word, but I just made it up, right? There's a fine line between being stubborn and determined and being an imbecile, you know, going about things the wrong way. St. Paul was a determined man. He was very determined. He encouraged other people to be just like him, to, to be determined in their pursuit of faith in Christ. And he was so stubborn that he would not give in to any false way. He wouldn't even allow others who kind of came in and, and, and said, you know, hey, look, you need to add to it just a little bit. It, it wasn't in the lesson today, but let me read for you um, from uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. We picked up in our lesson at verse 4. Paul writes in verse 2, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What he's saying, look out for, beware of, some translations have it. Beware of those people who are like dogs, who are like uh, evildoers, who, who want to twist the true faith and make it into something else. He talks about those who mutilate the flesh. There were a group of people who were following St. Paul around the world. Modern scholars call them Judaizers. And these people would follow Paul around and they would wait till he left and they would come in behind him at a new church and they would say, listen, he didn't give you the whole story. Here's what you need to do. You need to add to it ancient Jewish practices like circumcision and dietary restrictions and keeping a Jewish calendar. This is what you really need in order to be full Christians, not just that sort of thing that Paul talks about. And he is very angry about it. He writes this letter... In part to say, no, that's nonsense. Do not do this. Chapter 3 is really the kind of, kind of the, the center part of Paul's argument. And his argument is this. If we embrace anything, anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, we have gone astray. If Christianity, as Christians, if we embrace any other teaching other than faith in Christ, then we have added to, our, to the faith in Christ a religion that is not authentic Christianity. So when it comes down to it, it kind of goes like this. If someone was to ask you, how is it that you know you belong to God? How is it that you know that you'll be resurrected on the last day? Nobody would say it that way. In our world, they would say, how do you know that when you die you'll go to heaven? That's the way they would ask it, right? There's only one answer. Because I have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that and that alone. If you add anything else to it, then you have diluted it and you don't have faith in Christ. The answer is not because I came from a good family. You might have. You might not have. It doesn't matter. The answer is not because I've done a lot of good things. You might have. You might not have. It really doesn't matter. The answer isn't that, well, I have this, this uh, religious ritual that I went through. There were people around. Everybody saw it. There were documents that were signed. 
That might be true, but that is not why you have confidence in Jesus Christ. Paul calls those confidence in the flesh. There's no place for anyone to have any sort of confidence in those things. Will you look with me in your bulletin? Will you just turn in page, I think it's page 6. Look at page 6 of the New Testament lesson. It begins like this in verse 4. Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, and let me tell you what, you want to match resumes? You want to talk about your good family and your good deeds and your good stuff? All right, let's pull them out. We'll match resume to resume. Look where I am. I am circumcised on the eighth day. That, you can't even do that yourself, right? You're eight days old. Your parents have to do that for you. So somebody was meticulous enough to make sure that that part of the law was fulfilled on Paul's behalf. He was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That means he's saying, I am not of mixed ancestry. Both of my parents were Jews. He also says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Somebody likes that. (laughs) I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the two tribes that stayed loyal to the Old Testament covenant. Judah and Benjamin. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from a loyal tribe. I'm a Pharisee. Pharisee means pious ones. Somebody who was devoutly religious. I am zealous. So much so that I actually went out to kill people who were, who were you know, saying something contrary to historic Judaism. They were called the church. If you went down and looked at everything under the law, I lived a blameless life. Now look back with me, will you? Back to the, back to the lesson in verse 7. But whatever gain I had. What gain is he talking about? He's talking about all those things that I just mentioned, right? Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Whatever was gain to me, I counted as loss. Whatever was on the plus side of my column, uh, an asset, I counted as a liability. You get that? Whatever was on the good side, I counted as a loss. Now notice, look at verse 8, the next one. For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of how much? Some things, a few things, a couple things. (laughs) No, I suffered the loss of all things. And count them, look at this, as rubbish. Scubalon. It's like scuba dive, only scubalon. Say this with me, scubalon. Try it. Scubalon. Yeah, you did it. Well done. Now go wash your mouth out for soap because that is a really bad word. Paul, see, I have, Frank said I didn't say it. Uh, yes, you did. I saw you. He mouthed it. Scubalon. Rubbish. A, a lot of translations have garbage. The old King James Version is closest. I count them as dung. If you've ever worked on a farm and you've went into the stall and you had to scrape stuff off the floor and throw it into the wheelbarrow and take it out, that's the word he uses. I count everything that I had seen before as a positive like manure. 
That's exactly what it is. I was driving down the road the other day. Um, I was coming back from Ravenna, and I saw this um, farm trailer, you know. It was sitting out on the edge of the road, and there was a sign up there. It had all these garbage bags in them, you know, like regular hefty bags. You know, they were all bound up, and they're all over this, this wagon. And, um, and it said, uh, there was a sign out there that said manure, $2 a bag. Um, and I had a strange urge to stop and buy it for somebody, but I didn't think of anybody who would, would really want it, you know. But if I put a bow on it and left it on their doorstep, whether they would think that was a real present or not, you know. All the things that were, now if I ever do it, you'll know who did it. And all the things that I thought were valuable to me are like this bag of manure. That's what he says. I know it's I know it's rancid, but that's what I, hate, I didn't say it. Paul said it, right? Verse eight. Back again. Verse eight. In order that I may gain Christ, count everything as rubbish, garbage, dung, manure. In order that I might gain Christ, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be single-minded. There is nothing else in the world other than apprehending Christ. It is pursuing Christ and Christ alone. Going after Him with all that we have. Pursuing Jesus and putting no confidence in anything other than that. In order that I might be found in Him. I love this. That I might be found in Him. And I might know Him. Not just know about Christ. I mean, we could go through and sit in class and, and do all sorts of study. You know, we could, we could learn. We could do original language work. We could, we could do historical uh, We could do all this sort of stuff. We could look at maps and take trips abroad and do all the things that we could do to learn more about Christ. And that does not teach us Christ. It teaches us about Him. Paul does not want us to know about Christ. He wants us to know Him. You get that? To know Him and the power of His resurrection. And even the koinonia, the communion, the fellowship in His sufferings. This is what we want. This is what Christianity is, a single-minded pursuit of this. And you say to me, well, Father Joe, what about good works? I mean, shouldn't we be doing good things in the world? Shouldn't we kind of be out there, you know, doing good works? No. (gasps) No. It's not about doing good works. And if we think for one minute that any good thing we do in this world adds any bit of, of confidence, any bit of credential before God, we are, we are deceiving ourselves more than anybody else in the world. If we think that God is impressed, oh wow, Joe, look at that. I mean, you got up early this morning. Yeah? No, he's not impressed. Not now, not ever. Well, you say, I kind of thought we should, you know, I, I kind of thought that we should do good things. No, we should pursue Christ. We should pursue Him so much that our own identity is lost in His. That I might be found, listen to Paul, in Him. So that it's not our good deeds, but His good deeds. It's not us trying to achieve something. It's God doing what God does, reconciling the world to Himself through us. A little little mind exercise here. I want you to imagine two children on a playground. Okay? A little boy, a little girl. The boy's it. Okay? He's chasing this little girl. Can you see her little pigtails? You know, she's running as quick as she can. And maybe she's just a step faster than him. But for some reason, I want you to imagine this little boy has given up on everybody else. 
There are no other children he is pursuing. He is going after this one little girl, okay? And she's running fast. She runs fast. He runs as fast as he can. She turns left. He turns left. I almost said right and then pointed left. She turns left. He goes left. She goes right. He goes right. She jumps over the swing. He jumps over. Everywhere she goes, he goes, and he follows in pursuit of her. Can you see him? Now, I want you to answer me a question here. Who's controlling his movements? Well, he is. He's free to do what he wants. He can can stop chasing her anytime he wants, right? He could go find some chubby little kid, Buddha, you know, and go chase him, you know. He doesn't have to go after this girl. But as long as he's pursuing her, she's the one who's controlling his movements. This isn't about a child's game, is it? This is what faith is. That we become so consumed with pursuing Christ that our lives and our actions are not our own. We're just doing what He does. We're just chasing Him through the world. And all of a sudden, there are good things that come out of our lives. Lots of good things. It's not our doing. It's God who does them through us. The only question we have to answer, this is the only thing that matters in the world, Who are we pursuing? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.